As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Hello, this is the Game Football Podcast from The Times. I'm Hugh Wisencroft. Today, has the age of football conspiracy hit us? Elsewhere, a Brighton more XG football than sexy football to predictable palace have a shock in store for Roy Hodgson. How an unknown analyst is impacting the game. And we ask, should players be banned from fantasy football? It is a busy Monday ahead for you. Hello to Alison Rudd, Gregor Robertson and Tom Roddy. How are you doing, guys? Hello. Well, you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. It's, it's been pointed out to me that I'm always happy at the start of the podcast and often the three people I'm speaking to are less than enthused. And frankly, it's just impolite. From here on out, I will not accept it. But I'm glad to know that you three today have given me the appropriate response because why wouldn't you want to be happy to be on a football podcast and pay to talk, which you are. So so here's the time to do the job. Let's start uh, by discussing what, I've, what I wanted to talk about for a while, football conspiracies. Um Every weekend, it seems that one club or another thinks the world of football is against them and that someone somewhere is so desperate for them to have drawn a game, an insignificant match or whatever, that they're talking about conspiracy theories pretty much. And I wonder whether it's just the age and the society and what's going on outside of football that is now making people think that football is involved. You know, whatever crazy things they're seeing on Facebook or being delivered to them on WhatsApp has filtered into the game as well. Frankly, I just think it's insane. But um, I wondered, Alison Rudd, what you think? Well, I think you're onto something, Hugh, because I have of late been getting emails in the style of the old-fashioned letters written in green ink, which were, you always knew it was going to be something strange when someone wrote to you in green ink and uh, and they'd found your home address. That was strange too. And then, it, you know, the internet came along and it all dried up. But lately I've been getting emails, long, long emails, very detailed emails, clearly from people who are not stupid. They're eloquent and they can spell and they get good grammar, but they're absolutely convinced they know the truth. <laughs> and how and how can I help them uncover the truth? Uh, the two most recent ones have been that referees are on the take. They they take bribes, and it's obvious they're taking bribes to skew decisions to go against their team. And the most recent one was um, I know the truth about. Which is which, which, which I actually found quite upsetting. Really, it was I know the truth about Hillsborough and the Munich air disaster, and no one else does. So uh, it makes you feel like Julian Anderson, strangely, like <laughs> there should be music playing in the background. <laughs> um, so you're onto something. Yes, the, the, the conspiracy theorists are coming out, but it's partly because people have nothing else to do. Exactly. <laughs> people, I mean, people people are being told to sit at home, aren't they? You know, stay mm. home, stay. Stay home, save lives, build a conspiracy theory. It's automatic. It's all filtered in through the fake news. We get people talking about squiggly lines on the VAR, all sorts of stuff, Gregor. Yeah, and uh, look, it's also you can tie this into the, all the chat about vaccines at the moment and kind of people people peddling crazy stories about that. It's the world in which we live, I think, just now. And there is some truth in the fact that we're all penned in 
our homes and uh, staring at screens all day. Um, but there's also just a kind of, you know, putting conspiracy theories aside from there's just a, such an urge from everyone to defend the kind of honour of their own team as well, it seems. Like, there's no, you know, there's no ability to see... I, I just thought the penalty, the penalty sort of claim in the Man United-Chelsea game, that I'm sure we're going to come and talk about, the fact that people were seeing it so clearly from one side to the other and making out as if this was like, it was so obvious. Like, how can... How could they possibly have got this wrong? When quite clearly, people are seeing this differently. Like, everyone is. The people at home are. The people in the studio were. Pundits were. So, there's just no, like, nuance. There's no nuance in life at the moment, let's be honest. So I have spent uh, the morning, Gregor, I've spent the entire morning arguing with my Manchester United friends over that penalty decision. Callum Hudson-Odoi, yes, it touches his hand. But I was, you know, one Arsenal mate in our WhatsApp group had to say to the other Manchester United supporters, aside from me, guys, take your Manchester United hat off for a minute. Do you really think that should have been given as a penalty? If it was against you, would you be saying that's that's definitely a pen? But one of them in our group was basically saying, well, the VAR ref thought it was a penalty. And I was like, how do you know that? And he said, well, he asked him to go over to the screen. So he, he, he obviously thought it was a penalty. And I was like... Well, no, that, that that's not the case. He, he merely wanted it to be checked. And obviously there was something to look at because we all saw the ball did touch his hand. But whether that makes it a handball or not is, is another argument. Suddenly it was like, well, look at Lindelof's against Palace earlier in the season. It was like, well, they've they've changed the, the sort of discretion on, on making those decisions. since There was like no room for nuance over what was clearly a decision that needed to be looked at and had varying opinions. But I totally agree with you, Gregor. It's the entrenchment now. I mean, it's always existed, but I, I don't know. It seems to be because it's um, a combination of football and this extreme technology. I basically sent them a video of that decision um, in real time. And I went, tell me if it was handball. Because you can't. Obviously, slow down to a milli, milli, millisecond. Okay, fair enough. It might look like handball, but he's he's obviously reached out to try and touch Greenwood. Greenwood's reached out to try and shield him off the ball. Both of their hands go towards it. It just happens to touch Hudson Odoi's first. I mean, is would that be a penalty? Would the, would we be saying that if it was on the halfway line, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera? No, we wouldn't. But it's the it's the reaction of it's always against us. And then all the Liverpool mates in the WhatsApp group chime up and went up and go, hold on a second. No, it's always against us. And then my Arsenal mates go, well, what about David Luiz against what? And suddenly everyone is saying that there is a conspiracy against their team, Tom Roddy. I, I can't take it anymore. This incident isolated just on that. Um, I think there's that, that the cliche of I've seen them given, isn't there? I've seen them given and people see it as kind of a way out. But what it really means is that the, 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 the decision could go either way. Um, some people could see it as a penalty. Some people couldn't. I didn't think it was a penalty because Hudson Odoi, his hand comes up to 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 put his hand onto Greenwood to to take his pressure. That's what happens in my eyes, anyway. So I didn't think it was a penalty. In general, in terms of the conspiracy theories, I think that technology has played a huge role in it because of social media and exactly what you're talking about, Hugh, there. You've got WhatsApp groups. Everyone's got WhatsApp groups for their fans and like-minded people. It's an echo chamber of thoughts and opinions. And someone someone pipes up and says there's a there's a there's a conspiracy against us, you know, Man United fans talking about the idea of penalties you know there's been so much talk of penalties against us uh, for us that now they're stopping it happening 
And I think also technology in terms of football as well, because VAR coming in, it brings so many more people into the equation, into the, the conversation that there's this theory that there's a group of people who could be now be conspiring against you. It's not <laughs> just, point, yeah. you know, the, the original the original issue of, of conspiracy theories was the referee. You know, I, I think I remember Howard, there was this idea of Howard Webb having a Man United top underneath his, his referee jersey. And it was Howard Webb is a Man United fan. Whereas now... It's it's this group and kind of a collusion of people. And I think the main issue there is the transparency of VAR because there's we know there's conversations going on and there's 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 this kind of mythical place of Stockley Park, which Alison is the one out of us who knows the most because you went there at the very beginning and did a did a great piece on She's it. In on but it too, Tom. but to most of it most people it's it's this mythical place they don't know and you can create things in your mind and i think the 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 key to it is transparency and there's two possible options one is that you get the referees out afterwards and they answer questions on their decisions and the second which i think is more agreeable is miking up getting everyone mic'd up because then you can it's totally transparent you hear their thoughts and opinions in that moment we'll just hear more panic and more you know referees at the moment jesus honestly but quickly what on earth is Solskjaer doing citing articles on chelsea's website (laughs) what is what are we what have we come to here what is he doing? And I think he sort of realised, you know, he was asked to expand on it and he sort of realised, if I was to say here now, I'm like talking about an article on Chelsea's website, I will look rather foolish. So he kind of pulled back from it. And everybody's scrambling around. Everybody's scrambling around going, what, what's he talking about here? Nobody really knew what he's talking about. So, you know, what are we doing? What what are they doing? You know, that they're, Ferguson, you know, Ferguson, Ferguson was someone who was like, he took a position and he, he never, never, strayed far from it at all and it was like you know he always stood stuck up for his team and did this I think even that was an extreme for for a manager to cite an article on another club's website as if that as if the referee is reading it or anyone involved in decision making is reading it and that's the thing that I found remarkable he said they're trying to influence the referee what does Oli Gunnar Solskjaer think the referees do before a game go and read the, the websites of both clubs to find out a little bit more about the players and the 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 record, like why would they even look at that? But certainly, why would it have an effect on them? Even if they did, I mean, it's it, it was a remarkable claim actually, and there was a lot of clutching at straws this weekend for me. Um, do you do you have a theory on Alison why Ole Gunnar Solskjaer seemed rattled by a Chelsea website article before we move on? <laughs> I think there are two. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's, the one who wears all white and talks to the media, <laughs> and the one who wears all black and manages a football team. So I think the, the all, all one dressed all in white was programmed. You know, it's a, it's a clone or something, and uh, it wasn't programmed correctly. So he pressed the act like Fergie button and went over the top a bit. I I I have no idea. I mean, Solskjaer himself says he has taken all his managerial advice and. Um, sort of learned from Sir Alex and presumably he thinks this is this is a good path to go down to to build a sense of us against them to 
to actually, ironically, put pressure on the officials by saying other people are putting pressure on the officials. He probably thinks it's a modern day version of what Sir Alex would do. If Sir Alex will do it, I would do it. It's fantastic. Uh, I was embarrassed as a Manchester United fan when I heard him say that. I'm not going to lie. Was, <laughs> but can you answer me why he, wears, why he wears different clothes for different roles? Because he was sort of brought in to be the person that mm, revitalised the, the club spirit. And so he decided to come out and be the ever smiley, ever happy, regardless of the result, let's put some positivity on it. And now um, he's been there for quite a while. It's become apparent that he sort of earned the trust of the, the, the hierarchy at the club. And now it's the, the, the manager that has to be a little bit more bitey, a little bit more ego, especially looking around at some of the other clubs. I want a little bit more respect. And yes, he's, of course, been in the school of Ferguson. And, and that's, I guess, how he's going to get it. But he, he needs to be a little bit more specific on it. Why does he wear white before the game, black during the game, and white after the game? I don't, I really don't understand. You'll have to ask him, Alison. Good news is you'll probably get an opportunity to do so. <laughs> Tom, go ahead. I wonder who's fueling it because I'd be worried if the Manchester United manager's scrolling down the, the opposition website before a game. Uh, before a game. I mean, the, the club websites are a strange place, place in general. I mean, I think the Chelsea website publishes uh, transfer rumours about their own players most days, which is a bit of an odd thing to do. Um, but, yeah, I just wonder who's fueling it because, I mean, there's Jose Mourinho used to be, there was this this theory that Jose Mourinho used to go into press conferences and Rui Faria, his old assistant, used to say, have you heard what so-and-so said about you? Have you heard what so-and-so said about you? And he'd go head there calm and by the time he actually got in there, he's riled up. But So I wonder, I do wonder who's sort of fueling that in Solskjaer, who's fed that to him? I mean, we should probably briefly touch on the like uh, Luke Shaw's sort of accusation though. <laughs> I mean, that's really where a lot of this has also been fueled from, and this this weekend in particular, and that he's saying that the referee was basically knew that, that if he gave that decision for the handball, it would have sparked all sorts of controversy, and that was sort of influencing him. And then Man United came and said, "Oh, he misheard it." So it's, we're living in a fake news era. It's kind of <laughs> it's it's uh, I, I, I can't get my head around it. I think you know, even if the referee did say that. That's not evidence of a conspiracy. That's evidence of the immense strain that, pref- that referees are under. And, you know, all of this, all the things we're talking about just now is a part of the reason for that. Absolutely. And I think it, it will destabilise the relationship between players and referees now out there as well on the field, because um, I think that was a human comment between two. If it happened, if it didn't and it was misheard, then that's even worse, frankly. Um, but the good news is, guys, we've, we've got a whistleblower on all of this. It came at the Hawthorns. Uh, his name's Lee Mason. He blew the whistle twice. Um, and that means that there's more evidence of a conspiracy. Uh, look, it's like the Wizard of Oz stuff. There's someone behind the curtain controlling things uh, at Stockley Park. At least that's the accusation. Brighton fans certainly believe that, I guess. After the decision to disallow, then allow, then disallow a free kick from Lewis Tunk um, at the weekend. Um, a shame, really, when I saw it. When I saw it was Lee Mason, my, I just sort of... My heart sunk for him. Um, He was replaced as the fourth official for the game at Bramall Lane yesterday due to injury, guys. Inverted commas. That's more conspiracy stuff. 
listen, I, I don't know what was going on with the game at the Hawthorns and that decision. I can understand why it was disallowed and I can understand why it was briefly allowed as well. Let me try and explain it if I can. Maybe you guys have a better explanation, but the wall was set. Um, but the goalkeeper wasn't in position. Lee Mason blew the whistle. He's, it, I think it is claimed or reported that that was because he wanted to get the wall a little bit further back. Lewis Dunk took the free kick. He says, I wasn't blowing the whistle for you to take the free kick. I was trying to get someone in the wall to take a step back. He then blew the whistle a second time before the ball went into the back of the net, which was what VAR alerted him to, because if he blows it a second time, then play stopped and it hadn't crossed the line yet. So it wasn't a goal anyway. Obviously, players on both sides had absolutely no idea what was going on, nor did anyone watching the game. It was one of the most bizarre examples of refereeing and VAR that we could probably have found. More case studies for them to go over at Stockley Park. Tom, what was going on, if you can answer that? It was the Sam Johnston. It was that he realised Sam Johnston wasn't ready, wasn't it? Uh, that was why. I mean, it's. I, I came away from this weekend... Uh, once again, feeling that the quality of refereeing in this country is really low. But the more overwhelming feeling was a, a sense of empathy with, with the referees, really, because you, if Stuart Atwell did say what Luke Shaw said he said he had, then it was really troubling because a referee should not be worried about or considering uh, the, the the reaction after a game. They should be focused on making the right decision. So that, if he did say that. And then with the Brighton-West Brom game, the actual, the first incident that happened was uh, Yukushnu's handball, which got taken to VAR and Lee Mason looked at the screen and gave the penalty. And, and in my eyes, it was a penalty. But you just felt as soon as Lee Mason got told to go to the VAR, I mean, you felt his hands clam up because <laughs> the, the amount of pressure that must be, be feeling that he must have felt in those moments must be awful because of the so much commotion around him at the moment. And there's also something with VAR that I was kind of thinking about. I mean, Lee Mason is, is a, is, has been around for quite a while now, but there's also kind of, there must be a hierarchical thing. You know, if the VAR is a senior experienced referee and they tell you to go and view it, there's probably the feeling that this should be overturned. You know, the, the person who's counselling me, telling me to go and, and re-referee this and reconsider it is senior to me. Um, I mean, that the incident with the dunk free kick was just really ugly. And it was a case of probably a man whose mind is completely muddled at the moment with so much going on around him. And it, 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 common sense says that goal should have just been given because the whistle had gone. They're losing the plot a little bit. I think the referees are losing, losing control. And part of that's to do with VAR and part of it's to do with just... Everything being more forensic just now without fans, um, and looking around the papers this morning, you know we we employ Peter Walton, and he's saying he shouldn't have been given a, a game as significant as that after being in bad form. You know that's a, they call that six pointer. He didn't know why he was given the game. If you look at in another paper, Keith Hackett is saying that he should retire 
He's saying, <laughs> he's saying he's not. He should have retired a few years ago. He's not up to it anymore. Uh, Mark Clattenburg, another one, is saying like, you know, he's he's not basically not good enough as well. So, the from every angle, I mean, referees are getting the same scrutiny as players now. Um, the pressure, the pressure on them is just remarkable. I just think, I think we need to kind of roll back a little bit from it, and and you know, I. I I think part of the reason we're seeing officiating deteriorate so much is because of the the environment that they're they're asked to be asked, being asked to referee in at the moment, and and I really do not envy them. Although you know, look, Lee Mason, that incident in isolation was really shambolic. He, he made a mistake; it was a human error, yes, but he, he's he, if he said to to, to Lewis Dunk, you can you can take a free kick. And then realised that the goalkeeper wasn't ready. That's his mistake. It's a big mistake. Um, and he's tried to roll back on it. And then Vara tried to, you know, tried to intervene and tried to, try to basically take it back. And I just think that we're seeing referees scared to make some decisions and also kind of on edge when they're making other important decisions too. I suppose they're probably second guessing themselves a lot as well, aren't they? Because before VAR, they would be able to go into a game, make a decision and come away thinking, well, that's what I thought I saw. Whereas now they're given the opportunity to go and look at it in slow motion and they're still getting told what they, the decision they made was wrong. The Greenwood and hudson Adoy thing, uh, hands up anyone who didn't think that it was Greenwood who handballed in real time. My, I thought it was a foul to Chelsea free kick to Chelsea I thought he'd handballed it and then when the VAR the VAR shows that wasn't the case so we're, you know, VAR is actually kind of making us relive the game this is what referees are having to deal with so they're going along to the monitor and seeing something that's completely different more than likely from what they saw in, in real time that's not easy I've done a referee course so I am a qualified referee and you are told the most important thing for you to know as budding referees is that the referee is always right, even when you're wrong. Otherwise, you cannot referee again. You cannot referee again thinking, I wonder if I saw that right. Or I wonder if, I, want, you know, I wonder if you've got to be quite arrogant. You have to have faith that you've studied the laws of the game, that you've got enough hours under your belt and that you are in charge. And the only way you can have any authority, you are told, is to ignore people shouting in your ear, oh, you missed an obvious handball, you're an absolute idiot, because you are right. And it doesn't matter if afterwards someone was to show you that you were wrong, you have to believe you are right. And that is how people like Lee Mason, the older referees in particular, have been taught. So you suddenly throw um, VAR at them, that completely crumbles away. And I think that is at the heart of why he was almost paralysed with not knowing what to do. He actually didn't know when he'd blown his own whistle, did he? Because it's not that unusual a situation that a referee would blow a whistle thinking that a free kick can be taken. Then he blows his whistle again because, oh, you've seen that someone's um, not ready or there's an infringement or you hear it all over the land, the referee going, whistle, 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 whistle. No, 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 hold up, hold up, guys. You can't take it yet after all. And everyone grumbles. The ball often goes in the back of the net when it's not it's not valid that it does so because the, the referee wasn't ready for you to take it. 
But because VAR was there and because he, it was so... I agree with you guys. I think VAR is making their brains explode. He just, he just became paralysed with not even knowing, not even knowing why or when he had blown or how many times he'd blown his whistle. And you can't let the goal stand if the whistle is blown again anyway. That's the, that's, that's the rule. So it, you can't say, oh, I think it should have stood because Lewis Dunk was crossed. So it's, it is very ironic, but trying to bring in little pockets of perfection in a game which is run by intuition and faith and good faith, you, 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 mess, you mess with the officials' heads. And that is at the heart of what went wrong with um, Lee Mason, I think. I'll say again that all VAR has done is opened up a new layer of subjectivity. There's, we're learning that, as I said before, even offside, I don't think are necessarily objective. And that sounds mad. But we, we, from that list, we're going back to that list of Liverpool one and a handball, you look, you know, at, you saw something different from what you saw in real, in real time. And you've got to kind of also think about how it affected the game. Did it affect the game? Was it enough to give someone an 80% chance or whatever to score a goal from the penalty spot? No. I also think you're missing what's glaringly obvious, Gregor, that, that Lee Mason, um, most of the Premier League managers, those at Stockley Park, and I think Sam Johnson as well, and I've got my doubts about Alison Rudd to add to that as well, are all part of the football Illuminati, of course, <laughs> conspiring against um, Brighton and Hove Albion because, of course, that would be the, the, the main target in the Premier Obvious League football. Target, yeah. <laughs> uh, let's move on let's move on because it wasn't meant to be a chat that long but there you go the strong feelings about it let's quickly talk about Brighton then I said a little bit earlier on that they're probably more XG football than sexy football they had 71% possession against West Brom 15 shots to West Brom 6 they had 81% pass accuracy of course missing two penalties they lost the previous game to Palace having 25 shots 75% possession 87% pass accuracy they are now three points above the relegation zone Allison, they need more substance yeah I'm starting to lose sympathy with them actually <laughs> I mean uh it started off didn't it that Brighton oh you know they've transformed under Potter they play adventurous football expansive football they're more attractive to watch than they were under Chris Hutton. How lovely. And uh, you come away from watching a Brighton game, always feeling vaguely entertained. But, but, but uh, what's the point of football? The point of football is to score goals. And if you've got awarded two penalties in one game and you're unable to take one of them properly uh, and you've got all those stats behind you, you, you are taking your eye off what really matters. And um, I... I I'm, I don't think it's a jinx. I don't think it's bad luck. I think it's... I used to play um, five-a-side with a, a group of guys and we would... We were just... <laughs> we were really sad and we would just wander around um, places where there were like hundreds of pitches and try and find people who were also sad and had got an opposition. And the, the, we would often end up playing against a team who just enjoyed passing, passing, passing around but they never won because they couldn't score. They were by far the better footballers. They could dribble, they could nutmeg you, they could do drag backs, they could pirouette. They were really nice footballers, but they just, when it came to shooting, they didn't know how to shoot. It was not something they even cared about. And it was, even if you won, you weren't happy because you just thought, that's just really weird. Why are you doing that? It's all about winning and scoring goals. And I think Brighton, again, hitting into the realm of parody now where they can't, they can't, they can't, do that 
And I, I just think it's really peculiar. And um, if you want a conspiracy theory, I think they're overcoached. <laughs> Gregor, what, what do you think about them? Are they sleepwalking towards relegation? I don't think they're sleepwalking towards relegation because, I mean, the argument is should they alter the way they play? It's the kind of same kind of conversation a little bit as Leeds earlier in the season. But this is Brighton are still a small club, relatively speaking, in the Premier League, and they're doing well to be where they are when you look at budgets and everything. And and as and the whole thing that's opened up is conversation about about the, about statistics and about expected goals and you know and expected goals. I was looking at the table there. They've got only Leeds, Liverpool, Manchester United have got better expected goals for than Brighton and you know that that means nothing but it's kind of their argument will be you look at the patterns over a long period of time and eventually that that will turn into goals and that that's not always the case I look at look in the championship and always every single season top of the league and expected goals is Brentford or Brentford and for some reason they always fall behind and they are improving and I'm sure they will be they will be promoted but it's a long game and they still might need a striker. They still might need that little intangible that, that you can't quite measure. So where Brighton are concerned, you know, there's just a lot to like. There's a lot to like about the way Potter coaches, whether he overcoaches or not. I, you know, the way that Brighton play, I enjoy watching them. They create chances, um, but they are still a team that are in that bracket of the bottom six or seven clubs who are going to be fighting relegation unless they spend more on a striker or yeah, have a little bit, bit bit better fortune. I mean, you've got to be honest, they have been unlucky too. If you miss two penalties, that's the second one was almost parody. Danny Welbeck hitting the post and then kind of trying to hit it again and falling over and then realize, not, not aware that you're not allowed to hit your own penalty up when it goes back over the post. Um, so I don't think they're sleeping walking, sleepwalking to relegation. That's the answer to your question. I don't think they are. I think that they will still have enough to stay up um, and I still think there is a lot to like about the way Brighton play. And actually, when you look on a longer term basis, I think they're probably on a better path, a better kind of trajectory than a lot of the clubs around them. The reason I ask, are they sleepwalking towards relegation? Uh, is because I think they need to wake up. You know, it's all good to play great football, but if you don't get the points you need, they're three points above the relegation zone at this point. When do you wake up? When you're in the championship? I mean, the time is now. What does that mean, though? That's the that's still the best way of 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 but fashioning points and winning. But I is think it? it is. I think it probably is. That's the way they play. That's the way they've been coached for a couple of years now. I still still think that's the best way for them to get results. They they're not scoring goals. They just need, need why are they going to have more better opportunity, a better chance of scoring goals if they start booming forward more? It's not that it's not it's not that they're leaving holes at the back. They're good defensively. It's that when they get forward, they can't put the ball in the back of the net. It's not how they get forward. It's when it they get there. how they get forward. If, you, if you're playing loads of intricate passes or you're a little bit shot shy, as opposed to play more direct when you get to the final third and taking on the, the chances that you think are sort of less intricate football, less tippy-tappy, have a hit when you have a chance of having a hit, the ball might end up in the back of the net more often and it might be a little bit more brutish. I'm not saying, I'm not saying completely tear up the script, but there's no. But I've looked back at their previous games, and we're talking about having 15, 16, up to 20, 25 shots a game on target. We're talking four, five, six shots a game on target. So there is something about the way that they attack that means that all of those shots that they're taking on are clearly not in the position 
to hit, unless they can't hit a barn door. But generally speaking, whatever they're doing right now is not giving them the chance to score as many goals because their shots on target, take aside penalties, aren't there. I don't think that they're they're sleepwalking into relegation partially because of the decision to sack Chris Hewton. I mean that that could possibly be sleepwalking into relegation, and that's no that would be no criticism of of um, Chris Hewton, but just a sign of the the club in, in thinking we don't want to to be drifting. We want to get a, a manager who plays a, a more attractive style of football in. Uh, so that we can progress, make that step up the league to sort of more of a mid-table side. And I think you, you mentioned sort of the idea of sexy football, Hugh. And I think, I mean, sexy football, what, what's sexy football? Yeah, I mean, the reason I ask that is because they, it seems like people think they're playing sexy football and it's only turning into expected goals instead of goals. Because the football is lovely, it's lovely to watch, but it's, it's not putting the ball in the back of the net and it's not winning as many games as they need to. We discuss on this podcast quite often, especially when Tom Clark's on, the idea of anti-football, which is uh, which is like Burnley, and I I kind of see Brighton as the ambitious, brave version of Burnley, and that's no criticism of Burnley because you know they signed last summer their biggest signing was Dale Stevens for a one point five million pounds, and I think there there does need to be a bit of criticism of Brighton because they have spent money, they put twenty million pounds on Adam Webster and paid a lot of money for Neil Mope and but Neil Mope was their top scorer last season with 10 goals and he stopped scoring this year he hasn't got a goal in eight games so I think that you know if they had a goal scorer if they had the Patrick Bamford up there someone like that I think they would be they would they would be they would be getting points on the board I mean how many how many of the Brighton players would you take in the Man United team? How many would you take in the Aston Villa team? Not not many, would you? No, 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 no. That's exactly what I'm saying. So it's not it's not like they have these individuals to, to who who can win a game uh, on their own to who can you know put those right points now. They, they, they don't need a world beater. I mean, they're 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 someone like a Callum Wilson away from being a mid-table team. They need someone to put the ball in the back of the net. This conversation was had had about Leeds United last season actually with Bamford in the Championship. They, they created, the way they played football, they created more chances than anyone and their conversion rate was was, was awful. And this season, he's, 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 he's performing better in the Premier League. So, you know, sometimes these, the, it, is, it is kind of these fine margins. It's the form of a striker, the form of the guy who's got to apply the final touch. When when they have a kind of... And also, there's a, there's the whole, as Thomas alluded to, there is an argument about, you know, if Brighton were playing... Like the the football they had, they were playing under Chris Hutton. The fans would be starting to get on their backs, and they would, I know there's no fans in the stadiums at the moment, but the atmosphere would be very different. I still think that there's a broadly speaking, there is support of what Graham Potter is doing, and the fact that they are a club that are kind of they know they have they have a system, they know they have a plan, they know what they're doing, and. At the moment, you know, a few weeks ago we were speaking about them being on a, a really good unbeaten run, and they they had wins against against uh, Tottenham and, and Liverpool. So uh, this is this is this is the way that this is the world that Brighton are living in at the moment. Unless they have someone sticking the ball in the back of the net, which they they are really struggling for this season, 
they're they're going to be going through the fluctuations of form. I still think they're going to have enough to stay up. Let's hope so. Um, they're very close, as I say. Fulham's uh, form may be the difference in terms of answering that question on whether they do stay in the Premier League, because as I say, Fulham just three points behind both them and Newcastle. Uh, let's move on, though, to Crystal Palace, who nicked a result against Brighton a couple of games ago. They're, they're a club that is pretty stable at the moment with Roy Hodgson in charge. Not exactly the style of football that they have down at Brighton, though. He's been there since September 2017. After eight years in the Championship, Palace have now been in the Premier League for the past seven years. Should they usher in a new era in the summer with Roy Hodgson's contract coming to an end? Or should they stick with the tried and tested? Alison, what do you think? Well, I had this argument in print uh, with Tony Cascarino in the game today, Monday. Um, Tony says, time for a change. Tony also says, because uh, he likes Roy and everyone does, oh, let's not, you know, let's not sack him or anything ridiculous like that. Why don't you move him upstairs? Which is That's ludicrous. What, what, what would be the point of thinking you need a new philosophy but the guiding force on that philosophy would be the person you've just got rid of. Um, how would that work? It wouldn't work at all. Um, I got I got slightly cross over the coverage of 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 the of the, the Palace game because a lot of the um, punditry commentary, uh, you know, beforehand, half time, afterwards, they started talking about Roy Hodgson as if as if you know it was his obituary or something. Um, we all know he's old. He's, he's the oldest manager in the league and that his contract will be up for renewal. Uh, but it's, everything is couched in terms of, of the negativity of his age and the, um, the predictability of his approach to football and uh, sort of patronising sense, as you say, you know, uh, Gregor is patronising the sense of let's just ease him out to pasture his time has gone. Well, it clearly, you know, it clearly hasn't gone. This is somebody who I think you have to admire for wanting to stay in the game, be a hands-on coach. Um, given what he's been through, highs and lows, and ridiculed as England manager, he he brings so much. I've spoken to players about him. What is it about him? And every player he works under at club level, they absolutely adore it. And you think, really? Because it can be quite, it can be quite, you know, bread and butter, relentless, um, but being organised. Really, is there a lot of fun in that, being in a, in a, in a highly coached, organised team under Roy Hodgson? Are you really having fun? But that's the beauty of it. He does make it fun. He, he builds camaraderie. He gets more out of players than they should should give given their age or their price or their contract status. He's extremely good at putting together a team um, who really, if you look at it, you think, ah, I don't know, maybe they should be in real relegation trouble. And he manages his, he manages to build something greater than the sum of the parts. And all those things I've just babbled on about are so important if you want to stay in the Premier League and all the money that goes with it. And the last time... Palace got bored. They brought in De Boer and Total Football and everyone laughed at them because the players didn't know if they were left-footed or right-footed anymore. They couldn't score goals. And after 77 days, he got the boot and they brought in Roy Hodgson. And it was like a big sigh of relief. Oh, you know, here's somebody who knows what, what, what he has at his disposal and how to deploy players for the, the very best. And also, you know, Roy... 
he's not out of touch. He brings through players. He's he can actually be quite brave in terms of giving. Um, he has relentlessly given young players debuts ahead of their time, and they've done well. He, he rarely brings through a player, and everyone says, "Oh, he did that too early." He, he gets a lot out of. He doesn't mind a player having gravitas. So they've got Gary Cahill, and they give him a lot of authority at the club. They're not scared of a player having power. I think he's um, an excellent manager, but it's just not sexy, is it? It's just not sexy to have someone in charge who's 73 who guarantees you mid-table status. So I think it's a bit disrespectful. And if they really wanted to change it up at Crystal Palace, they'd have to spend a hell of a lot of money to do it and get rid of him. What do you think, um, Gregor? Is it a case of be careful what you wish for? A little bit. I think survival in Premier League is so finely balanced that you know if they were to rip this up and, and go in another direction... I think the most important thing for Crystal Palace is to be really nimble-footed about this and they have to have a succession, and like a plan. They need a plan for, for post-Roy Hodgson. I'm not just saying that that's just... If he signs another one-year contract, they still need to be looking at, around and really thinking, who's the next guy? I think, I think football clubs should be doing that anyway. And who knows, maybe they are. But it was a disaster last time. And they also need to... They need to make Palace a modern kind of dynamic club as well, have the right, correct structures in place, the, the right scouting, all the things that you need to survive as a modern club at this level now. Roy Hodgson is someone who, uh, as Alison said, makes them really organised and saying that the forward players often flourish under him and they, you know, they still, they have, they have flourishes of form where they, where they look really irresistible sometimes. Um, but he's he's doing the job, you know. You know the job he's going to do, and and there's a lot to, there's a lot to be said about that. I I went to I I wrote about Mick McCarthy at the weekend, who has just gone to Cardiff City, nine games unbeaten, won six in a row, and he's had a really bruising few years. Uh, be careful what you wish for, Brigade Ipswich fans, Ipswich Town fans, are uh, do not like to hear. You know they they hounded him out of the football club essentially, although they don't like to hear that either, and. Um, Paul Lambert was just being sacked today. They're in League One, uh, treading water, and Mick McCarthy is once again drawing the best out of his resources. And Cardiff could be in the Premier League next season. So these guys have been around for so long for a reason. They can still engage players. They can organise a team. It's not always, you know, the kind of epitome of modern free-flowing football. But there is real value in what they can do and what they offer. And you know, as Jamie Carragher was saying last week, not every club has to aspire to be uh, to play the football Pep Guardiola plays. Brighton are trying to do something similar, and that's the path that they've gone down. But it's difficult as well. It doesn't guarantee anything. So, I think that there's two aspects. There. One is knowing what Roy wants, and it sounds like he wants to continue. Don't be patronising and suggest that you can shuffle him upstairs because I'm almost certain that he would not want to be doing that. And to have the structures in place of the football club to mean that they're ready to, to so the football club is kind of forward thinking even if the man in the dugout is always at his age going to be kind of going from year to year that's the truth of the matter so they need to be quite nimble footed about it I think I went to the I did I covered the game yesterday and um, went to Sellers Park thinking you've got two teams in in kind of opposite positions in a way where Fulham have the momentum behind them uh, and are in a good moment. And Palace have a bit of a cloud over them because of this idea of playing pretty negative, boring football. 
and you come away, actually came away feeling the same thing. But at the same time, Fulham could well go down this year and Palace are certainly going to stay up, you know, pretty certainly going to stay up. And, and I agree with the idea of um, Roy Hodgson being a steady hand because also you, I went to the game thinking those things and then the point that they got actually means that Palace have their most points at this stage of the season in the top fly since '92. So there's this cloud over them, but they're actually in such in one of the best places they've been for years and years and years. And I think as well, it's the the steady hand of Hodgson because there's a conservatism about them at the moment, which you understand because they have, like a lot of teams, a lot of injuries, most notably Wilfred Zaha. Um, And their next games, I think their next games are United, Tottenham, West Brom, who are obviously battling relegation, Everton and Chelsea. And that 10 points can very quickly disappear. So you understand the the kind of cushion he wanted to preserve. At the same time, uh, I thought Fulham were there for the taking in that first half. And the, the players he still had in that starting 11 were very good players. A core of Gary Cahill, and Eberichi Eze and Christian Benteke, who is is actually in the best form for ages. And, you know, Eze I barely noticed yesterday because he just wasn't, he, he the, the team was set up to defend rather than use his quality. And it was a shame because I love watching Eze play. And he just, he never, he never really got an opportunity to get on the ball. That's the kind of inherent struggle though at the centre of a lot of, of a lot of modern football, let's be honest about it. Fans don't want just, you know, you, they survive for a couple of seasons and they go, yeah, that, this is good, but what's next? Fans, what, what is there for Crystal Palace to, to come and aspire to? And so you, so if there's a, it's a pretty hanging, empty question, isn't it? Because there's not much in the Premier League. You maybe maybe a miracle of winning a trophy. Aston Villa are what's to aspire to because they're a team who came so close to to relegation. They invested the money. You know they relied so much on Jack Grealish this year, and they don't this year. They've got they've got Ross Barkley, they've got Ollie Watkins, and they put more money into it than Palace did. But I looked at Palace this year getting Eze and thinking it takes the pressure off Zaha. Aston Villa are a former European champion. They have every right to think that they should be challenging for Europe. So, But I get your point. Their team has just come up and that's a fair point. But you know, I think there are a lot of football clubs who are, who are kind of wrestling with this a little bit. What? And it's not even just these football clubs. Let's be honest, it's every football club. It's, winning is the most important thing to most fans. We've had this conversation before. But there is, it's more and more, it's important how you do it. And you know, see Tottenham for details. Maybe it's just about the messaging to the fans. If if Roy Hodgson does get a new contract, he's seventy three years old. Maybe Steve Parrish, the chairman, will tell him, "Look, we're all about mid table finishes in the Premier League, and um, it might be boring for a while, but once we've got some sort of stability, for me, I still see Crystal Palace. And if they were in the Championship, I would not be alarmed. I wouldn't see the name Palace and think, "Oh my word, they should never be in the Championship." They were there for eight years. They've been in the Premier League for seven. And they are one of those clubs that the message to the fans should be consolidation. We want to be a Premier League side. But they just need to be maybe another thing transparent about. And show them voice where they are developing the club in other areas. Roy is a solid figurehead for them. And he'll hopefully 
as you say, consolidate in the Premier League. But let's see what, what else you're doing around the football club to, to develop it and make it grow so it's in a better place for the next guy. Well, we'll see what decision Crystal Palace make with Roy Hodgson's contract come the end of the season. And up next, we're talking jobs in football, football analysis to be specific, and how you find the right person for the job. Got a great story coming up for you. But remember, you can get yourself a subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times right now across all of your devices. Sign up today. You'll get yourself one month free. Just go online, search thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game. And if you enjoy the podcast, rate us, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast app you use. And make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss the next episode. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Next up on the Game Podcast, a story you can read right now on the Times app. How a Celtic blogger, nurtured by Brendan Rodgers, is now lifting Leicester City. Thankfully, it was written by our very own Tom Roddy. Tom, tell us a little bit more about this story. It's a good one. I heard about Jack um, quite a few weeks ago, and then he was just this this lad who Brendan Rodgers had, had plucked out of university. And I thought it was obviously kind of that, just those words sounded interesting. And then there was that, I looked into it, and then there was that, incredible interview which I'm sure you'll remember with James Madison after the Chelsea game which was so unique but the the thing that caught me in it was he said uh, me Jack the analyst and the gaffer sat down at the beginning of the season and this was Jack Lyons who uh, was the analyst who'd been mentioned to me plucked from university and he said they'd sat down and and looked at his game and that was what had this big impact on Madison improving his numbers for assists and his numbers for goals so I looked into it and and Jack was five years ago he was in he was studying um, primary education at Strathclyde University and he was living he was living with his mum um, in Cumbernauld, which is just outside Glasgow, and he he kind of had an interest for in football and football tactics ever since he was a little kid. Um, apparently, he 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 would draw these formations when he was four years old. He draw these formations and tactics rather than rather than doing like forests and families and things like that. It was an interest that then became an obsession, and he came across Michael Cox's zonal marking, which then sort of inspired him to create his own Celtic blog. And these were extremely detailed uh, tactical breakdowns of, of analysis of Ronnie Delia, uh, Delia who was there before uh, Brendan Rogers at Celtic. And then Rogers came along and he clearly started reading Jack's blog and maybe other, other blogs because one day Jack got a call saying um, that, that Brendan Rogers wanted to talk to him and and Rogers was on the other line and he asked him about his sort of life, what he was doing, um, and then he told him about this that he'd been reading the blog and that 
his tactical analysis was exactly the same things that Rogers thought and that the media pundits who were covering Celtic and the journalists, they hadn't picked up on the same things that, that Jack had. And so he invited him down to the training ground. And in the end, he offered him a part-time job as, a, as an, an analyst. And that happened for the re- remainder of the season and then come the end of the year he ended up working there full-time and then when Rogers came down to Leicester he brought him down to the King Power Stadium and now he's this a big part clearly from what James Madison was saying a big part of of what they do at Leicester. Gregor how much difference do the football analysts make because it's it's one of those jobs in football that people at home might not know much about. Yeah, I think a lot of it's to do with obviously preparation for team meetings and um, you know recruitment. Uh, it's it's also I must say changed very much even in the time, the five years or whatever since I've been a player. Um, but there, th- these stories are are really fascinating. I think it's kind of alternative routes from and there's there there are a number of them. There's um, a guy, Blades Analytic on Twitter. Uh, who kind of built up a big following analysing Sheffield United. Um, he was given a, a job by uh, Peterborough, Peterborough United kind of in the recruitment department. Um, then he got a job with a, a kind of a recruitment consultancy. And he's just gone to Luton Town as um, head of recruitment analysis, I think last week, just because he set up a Twitter account and, he, and people liked, the, liked his analysis on Twitter. And there, there was a story about earlier this season about the, the kid, um, 17-year-old kid in India who's doing recruitment work for Dundee United. This is kind of unheard of stuff because they have access to the data online and they can, you know, analyse players all, all around the world and, and do it very well. And the, th- the thing about it is they're not going to be given, this not, these aren't gimmicks, they're not going to be given these opportunities unless they're good at it. Brentford are another. Uh, Rob Rowan, who sat, really sadly passed away um, with Brentford's, uh, I think it's sporting director, director of football, um, and he he did something similar at Celtic. In fact, he he sent scouting reports to Celtic when he was he could have been a teenager, you know, around the age of twenty. Was they, they thought he was really good? They invited him in. He was given work there. He worked for um, he worked for a team in in, in League One in Scotland. Uh, he was given lots of little opportunities, but he was working in a bank, and then he got. He got a call from from Brentford, who'd also seen his work online, and and uh, that that's, that spawned a career in football too. There's another guy for Brentford called Brendan McFarlane, who wrote blogs and an analysis um, of French football, I believe, when he was on a a, a year with uh, what you call it, like a placement year uh, at university in France. And again, I think it was Rob Rowan got in touch with him and said, you know, can you do some scouting for us in France and look at some of the players that Brentford have. Same from France, uh, Ben Rama, Mopai, um, Mbwemo. Yeah, he, he's their scout in France. So that, you know, these are brilliant stories, and it's all. As I say, some people will be cynical about these, about hearing these things. But if they're not good enough, they won't be given the opportunity. And once they've got the opportunity, they need to take it. And so, you know, I think it's it's all the better. Anyone who can find a way into working in football, which is a dream job for so many people, and it's always been a close shop for so long. You know, people within the game who know the game. It's nonsense. Some of these guys definitely know what they're talking about. 
it's also a little bit of a, a safe bet for the clubs, isn't it? Instead of hiring a player from your team who's just retired, to, uh, who, who would probably need a, quite a bit of money, you can get, I mean, another example is Tom Payne, who wrote for Spiel Völerung, who which is the same um, German website which Jack Lyons wrote for too, which is tactical based. And Tom was a student at Leeds University, I think, and ended up working for Huddersfield briefly. And then now I think he's at the FA. And it's they start there working for free or a little bit of money. So it's actually a safe bet really for the clubs but they also it's similar to there is a kind of parallel with with modern coaching in that you've been a footballer for 20 years you go into coaching it's a new vocation yes you know the game but it's something that you're just taking up anew where there's other guys who haven't had a career in football who've maybe been a coach for 15 years and you know as much as it pains you to say it the likelihood is they'll be a better coach than someone despite their experience as a player who's so so you know as i say these guys have done it since they were teenagers. They've studied it. They've studied it as the as the internet has grown and and kind of there's been advances in analysis and data, and so they naturally are going to be the people who are best at these jobs. Alison, odd entry routes into football. Um, there's been some great stories from around the world. Can you remember some more of the odd tales of someone getting a job and being brought into a football club? Well, Thomas. Um, talked about Jack Lyons being plucked from university and which takes me right back to my childhood because Stevie Highway was plucked from university that's how he was introduced to the media um, yeah they had this graduate who just played non-league football and they just just decided he could play for Liverpool and I watched his entire career from through the prism of him being a university graduate so I thought he was more intelligent than anyone else he celebrated in a more uh, restrained manner because he was too clever to lose it in a celebration and his post-match interviews he over intellectualized them and uh, always threw a question back at the interviewer and so I saw the whole thing from him being some sort of like alien being he was a university graduate and then fast forward to last week and I interviewed David Martindale who's famous because he took um, Livingston to the Scottish League Cup final on Sunday. And he's famous for it because he spent nearly four years in jail. But actually, in terms of this conversation, he's really interesting because he, he managed three pubs while he was on bail. He studied a, a degree, nothing to do with football. He studied construction project management because he wanted to build his own house one day. And when he came out of prison, um, he got a job just sort of helping out um, a local club and then he was allowed to uh, lay out the cones, pick up the cones at Livingston. And because they were such in such dire financial straits, sort of little jobs, the odd job man, he got a bit more jobs, a few more jobs. And then before, <laughs> before you know it, he's the manager and he's uh, beating Celtic, which isn't too hard, but, but leading them to, to the, the Scottish League Cup final. That has to be... Take away the fact he's been in prison and therefore makes him a very unlikely hero. The fact that his career went from uh, pubs to odd job man to manager of a SPL team is astonishing. 
Look, football analysis, I think, is a big part of the game going forward. But next up, we're going to speak about something that, that's similar, but maybe shouldn't be a part of the game anymore. Uh, the Aston Villa boss, Dean Smith, has spoken to some of his staff and players after Jack Grealish's injury was publicised last week when a number of the club transferred Grealish out of their fantasy football teams, raising the unlikely question, should players use fantasy football? Alison, you've written about this in The Times and you think you've got the answer Oh, well, players shouldn't use fantasy football, but nobody should use fantasy football. If I ruled the world, it would be banned. It's very, very bad for your footballing soul. I banned myself from it, Hugh, because um, I have a professional duty when I'm reporting on a match to be uh, to, to look at every player, every tactic, look at both teams. When I was playing fantasy football seriously, I found myself only watching the players I owned or watching the players I hadn't put in and wishing them ill and getting slightly obsessed about it. And it was, it was affecting my job. So I said, right, that's it. I have to stop. I have to stop. But I'd already, I'd already realized it was becoming overwhelming and ruining the enjoyment of the game because you, there's, there's no way you can play it perfectly unless you hate football and you're just trying to win money, then it's fine. Use it. Um, uh, a bit like Tom's analyst, use it as a, as a tool for a career if you want, but don't don't play fantasy football if you like football. And so I can see why players who are too into it, it might affect, it's not just about leaks of information, which is bad enough, you shouldn't have that. But if you take fantasy football seriously, it's going to leak out because there's no way if you love your fantasy football, you are going to put in a player that you happen to know because you're training with them, they've picked up a knock you're the only person in that group, that group of people, the only ones that know that a player is going to likely to be out. So you can gain an advantage if you don't put them in your team and then people can see your team and then it's out there, it's information. But there's no way you're going to pretend you don't know that if you take fantasy football seriously. And also, I do think if you uh, progress it to its ultimate conclusion, might not players find themselves just ducking out of a tackle when the player they Behave. own. The player they own. Well, I mean, the theory, the theme of the show is conspiracy theories. One day, <laughs> one day, a player will be accused of ducking out of a tackle because he was, he needed three points to win his fantasy league division and and the player he should have tackled would have scored the goal. I missed that fantasy football is, is like a one million pound reward at the end of it if you win the season. It's like three points is not really enough to, to, to I think the win bonus would be more more enticing than the, the three points in fantasy football. I get your it's point. It's the pride. It's the pride. I have to say, I, I'm actually with you. I, I did it for years and then the last two seasons I, I've abandoned it because I find myself staring at my phone far too much as it is. And uh, when the deadlines come along, I have this kind of cold sweat down my back and panic and think, ah, oh, I've got, I'm not doing this properly. And then sometimes I abandon it. So I'm, I, I'm in agree agreement with you there. But Clearly, the the simplest thing would be to, would be to say you're not allowed to select any player in your team. Um, it's, it's kind of you know it's, it kind of goes down the route of the betting thing, isn't isn't it? It's like any sort of inside information. Although there's no money at stake, as I say. So the only thing it doesn't matter if you have inside information. The only thing that matters is if that information is kind of broadcast to to the wider public. So that's the that's the thing. And I think the as I say, the easiest option would be. You're not, allowed to use, you're not allowed to use your own teammates and certainly for, uh, you know, that'd be a blow for Aston Villa players, but um, I'm sure they'd get over it. 
look, I think players should be allowed to use fantasy football. Obviously, if a story came out that they'd all put five grand in each, you know, 25 players, and they were playing for some huge pot, then fair enough, you know, that, that slightly changes things. But I agree with you, Gregor. Don't pick any of your teammates, although that doesn't really answer Alison's point about, you know, you're defending against Harry Kane and he's triple captain for that week. Do you let him have a shot that maybe you would have you would have blocked it. I've answered that. <laughs> <laughs> the answer is no. <laughs> you're more worried about what your gaffer would say to you afterwards or your teammates <laughs> or your win bonus than three points <laughs> and Harry Kane is captain. <laughs> I think Alison's right. It, it does fall into the football conspiracies um, element of things. I think players should be allowed to use it. And, and look, Dean Smith was right to just remind them of the responsibility. The biggest thing that came out of it for me was that people know who's which which players have teams i don't know how whether that's like they've joined leagues with journalists or with mates and mates have shared it yeah oh by the way you know my mate plays for villa and he's taken this player out of his team but god it's a rare it's a rare situation to be in um and look you know going forward hopefully people all use fancy football responsibly you know if you're a footballer premier league footballer you know pick 11 football responsibly <laughs> that's not something I ever thought I would hear <laughs> that should be the message from here on out use fancy football responsibly my thanks to Alison Rudd uh, Gregor Robertson and Tom Roddy uh, thanks for being with me for the past hour or so and to you listening as well remember you can get yourself a digital subscription to the Times and the Sunday Times and get more of our award winning journalism across all of your devices just go online and you can get yourself one month free today search the times.co.uk forward slash the game to get started. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, Calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone.